Okay, so welcome to our second session of um, the renunciation class. I see a question. Is it okay to join if you weren't here last week? Absolutely. Please join, Linda. Welcome. So nice to see everyone. And <clears throat> my question actually is, we'll start with a kind of a review and a chance to talk about anything that you've been practicing over the last week. So we started with um, simplicity as our first topic last week, <clears throat> excuse me, corresponding to the first section of the study guide. Um, and I'm curious uh, what came up in practicing that or now that you've read um, maybe a little bit more in the suttas and so forth, if you have questions or comments about that, this is a chance to learn from each other and, and also to share our experiences. And I can't see everybody on the screen. We have more than one screen. So you, you can raise your hand and I might see you, but in case you're on the other screen, um, feel free to raise your Zoom hand um, and I will uh, call on you. Sandy. Um, well, I got inspired to uh, make 9 to 10 p.m. a uh, sort of digital and media-free interval for the evening, every evening, which normally that time of night I'm immersed in lots of <laughs> podcasts and online activities. So that was kind of a nice change of pace and I'm actually quite enjoying it. Oh, good. Did you find it had an effect on your sleep? Um, no, I normally sleep quite well, even with all the time I spend online, but it made a very nice break to my evening, so. Okay, that's great, that's beautiful. That would be an example of the electronic fast that was mentioned in the study guide. So that's a great practical application, choose an hour a day. Um, I see Max's hand up. Yeah, sorry, I don't, I don't know where the, the Zoom thing, I'm new to the Zoom thing, unfortunately, folks, so I, I know how to raise my hands. Thanks, thanks for seeing me. Uh, so I like the idea of the, the digital, uh, you know, break, uh, renunciation on that. I think uh, especially certain times of day, I'm going to integrate that into my practice, especially near bedtime. Uh, things I've done this week, though, I wasn't able to make it last week, but I read your, uh, read your study guide. It's absolutely wonderful, by the way. Um, I love all the suttas and all that kind of stuff. I haven't got through all of them yet, but uh, going through things I'm attached to through my closet, through clothes, and just trying to not cling to them. It just kind of letting them go and just say, okay, I haven't worn it. It's dirty. Why am I still holding on to this? And just freeing my mind with just physical clutter, letting that not take up the mind space that I think it does, you know, having things around takes up some mental energy, whether it's sitting by itself in the closet or not, it's still subconscious, I think somewhere. So uh, also did it with my boys as well. We went through some toys and we went kind of as a generous thing, which one, you know, letting toys go to other children, you know, kind of give that idea and still letting them have a choice of what they want to keep, but letting them let go of like, okay, yes, that, that I had fun playing with this a year ago, but yeah, let's, let's give it away. And it's been good for them to kind of get that habit as well. Uh, oh, that's beautiful. 
That's really beautiful. Generosity is um, a teaching that can be given to children so easily. And it's actually the first lesson that um, Asian children learn often is that when the monks pass through town, um, their parents take them out and have them put the scoop of rice into the monk's bowl. It's the, something that they can do even at a very young age. Okay, um, Bobby, your hand is up. Hi, um, thank you. I really appreciated reading all of this. And it's interesting, uh, when I got to the, from last week, the simple practices, I was reading it and I was thinking about the complaining and I was thinking to myself, well, I walk in the morning with a friend and she always complains. And I was telling my husband about this and I thought, oh my God, Bobby, you're complaining about this person who complains. <laughs> so, so my deal with myself was to just be vigilant and watch myself to see how much I complained. And I'm not gonna tell you, but it wasn't fun. <laughs> I didn't realize I complained that much. So it was, it's, that was really good. And also uh, just being present and being, making my, as much as I could, making my head be where my feet are. That's a nice way to say it, yeah. So, yeah, it was a good exercise this week, thank you. Hmm, great, thank you for sharing that. If I could make one comment, I would say that um, when you talked about going walking every day with someone who complains a lot, that's, you know, it's not that you shouldn't see your friend, but that is input into your mind. And so it's, you've been conditioned to complain and that might have an effect on why you are complaining so much. So mindfulness will help because then it doesn't get lodged as deeply if we're aware but we can understand our habits if we look at what we're taking in. Um, Aditi. Um, my question was around like identity. I think you mentioned in the study guide that even good identities, like, you know, if we are living off the grid, if we use it to isolate ourselves, you know, then it's really hard to be in conversation. Like when we meet a group of people, what do we tell them about us? Um, am I a vegetarian? I'm a Buddhist. You can't tell them any of those things because those will be all identities, right? Well, we would still have qualities. Um, actually, whether something is an identity or not, we couldn't tell from somebody just saying that. Um, and we will get to identity in the third week. That's, that's when uh, we'll talk about renouncing our attachment to ourself and our way of seeing ourself. But if a person doesn't eat meat, they're a vegetarian. But that's different, that, that's simply a statement of fact. Whether or not they're identified with it is a different matter. Okay. Um, I see Cynthia's hand. Uh, yeah, I um, was rather taken back at first when I saw that you had listed speech as renunciation and boy did that you know I if ever anybody has talked too much in their life it's me so it is I I had to learn to speak a lot in my family because both my parents were like chatterboxes and so um yes I'm uh, trying to think of everything that that means and could mean and, and how do I want it? Um, 
how yeah. do I want to live in, in, in that way to, to be smarter about my communication? So I like the way you um, shifted that a little bit as you were talking. Um, the first thing you said, I just reflect, the first thing you said was that renunciation of speech, you, you made a zip across <laughs> your mouth. Um, as if renunciation only means speaking less or, or not at all. You know, a vow of silence is the ultimate renunciation in speech. Maybe it is. Um, but then you pointed out that your conditioning is that you had to speak a lot in your family. And so, again, we see I'm, I'm leading us toward our topic for tonight of mental patterns is that, you know, what we took in, what we learned, what we had to do that's why we ended up doing those things and they're just habits and they can be changed and they're changed by wisdom where we start realizing okay what would actually be the useful the right amount of speech here whether it's a little or a lot um, depends on the situation so we start applying wisdom instead of habit that's a key feature yeah um, Thank you. you're welcome Anything else? Oh, and let me circle back in that Max said he didn't know how to raise his hand and there may be well be others who don't. And so there's actually a few ways to do it. Uh, depends a little bit on which um, you know, version of Zoom you have. I don't know why. But uh, one way is under the reactions on the bottom bar. If you click on that, there's, there's sometimes a long thing at the bottom that says raise hand. Or if you click on participants, it pops up a side screen with a list of everybody who's participating. And there, if you find your name, you can raise your hand from there. Or sometimes it's at the bottom of the participants. There's a little thing that says raise hand, maybe under the three dots. So those are three ways I know of to raise a hand. And if you try all of them, you'll find a raise hand button there somewhere. Okay. Oh, Anita, yes. Hi, Kim. I have a question about um, the sutta on page 18. Okay. Where you talk about the dilemma between the recluse and the layman. So, on the one That's hand, the you're talking about that. <laughs> okay, go ahead. Um, so, in that, you say that. Um, in the sutta on page 18, the second paragraph, it says that basically a recluse has the advantage. And then you follow that up with the Dhammapada verse by Gil Fronstal saying, even though well adorned, if one lives at peace, calm, controlled, assured, and chaste, then one is a Brahmin, a renunciant, a monastic. So I guess you want us to just ponder the dilemma? Oh, okay. So... Um... So those are just two different sutta passages. I'm just listing yes, yes. sutta passages related to renunciation and lay people. So the, the one that you first quoted is uh, from the questions of King Melinda, um, which uh, talks about this. So I'm, I'm letting the sutta speak for themselves. And so this in this sutta, uh, which is this dialogue between the monk Nagasena and the um, King Melinda, um, who was, you know, well, he was actually, uh, for some background, he was Western. He was Greek, Greek yeah. king living in, you probably know that background. Um, so there, yeah, it's, um, 
said in this teaching that the renunciate has an advantage. It's, it's clearly saying that, um, you know, renunciants are better in a sense. And that one earlier that about tapusa, which is from the suttas, that one also says quite clearly that lay people enjoy sense pleasures and they think that renunciation is like a precipice, whereas, you know, monastics think that renunciation is wonderful. And so we're, we're, we're hit with this as lay people when we read suttas like this, like, well, I guess renunciation isn't for lay people. You know, it's like, it's not, it's, you know, it's clearly we're, you know, we're just indulging our senses, living as lay people and the renunciates are doing better. And so then I also put in that verse um, from the Dhammapada where it says the opposite. It says that anybody can be a renunciate based on their um, mental attitude. So it says renunciation is a mental attitude, not necessarily the fact that you've put on robes and, and so forth. So they're contrasting. And yeah, we are meant to ponder that. And my, um, you know, because I've entitled this class, you know, renunciation for lay people, I have an opinion that um, it's a practice that is robust for lay people and that there are lay people who would want to do it. There were not all like Tapusa saying, well, I just care about my sense pleasures and I think renunciation is a precipice. We've got 32 people here who think that renunciation is interesting and are trying it out. So yeah, in some ways I'm um, trying to find a way that uh, for lay people, there can be a practice of renunciation, given that it's a critical practice and it is one of the wise intentions and it is one of the paramis. So um, yeah, but thank you for bringing that up and giving me a chance to get on my soapbox for a moment. Did I, uh, did I address your concern with the presentation of the teachings? Yes, yes, so, yeah, it wasn't a concern. It was just very interesting to think about both spectra. Yeah. Especially your question number three was, how do you balance the normal use of sense pleasures with the practice of renunciation? And that's a struggle I struggle with every day. So. It is, yeah. And that's for us as lay people, we have a much wider field of what we're quote unquote allowed to do. You know, monastics are told everything about everything they can do. They can walk this way, sit this way, stand this way, and they can't do this and they can't do that. Much of the monastic life is aimed actually at the thwarting of desire. That's a lot of what it's about. And for some people that is really, really good medicine and they just thrive. Um, I mean, look at monastics, they're glowing, a lot of them. They're happy. Um, some of us don't feel called to that life, but that doesn't mean we're all just sensually indulgent. Yeah, Anita, you're unmuting again. Yeah, I, I feel Vinaya having a bunch of rules makes it easier in a way because we, we don't have any rules and we have to create our own rules. That's right. It's so tough, yeah. We have to create our own rules. We have the temptation of we, we cook for ourselves every day. We have relationships, families, jobs. It's a lot harder. Um, and so, yeah, we need, we need all the help we can get. But, um, <clears throat> okay. Good. Well, then why don't we um, why don't we go on to today's topic? Well, maybe I'll just wrap that up by saying, <clears throat> yes. As you read the suttas, you may sometimes get the impression, hey, they're not speaking to me; they're talking to monks, and it's true. Um, and we have to navigate that as as serious lay practitioners. Uh, the suttas sometimes sound like they're not speaking to us, or that they're anyway. But I don't know. There, I think there's a sense that that they do always, and we can find our way through that. Okay, so I wanna talk now um, 
just a bit about section two, which you may have read for today. It was suggested to read it for today. If you didn't, it's okay. Uh, you can read it this coming week. I just wanna um, cover some of the key points that were talked about there. So section two has two main themes. Uh, the theme of the examination of different kinds of desire and the theme of letting go of mental habits and patterns. And both of these are really um, relevant for you know, renunciation relates to both of these, let's say it that way. So if we wanna practice renunciation, we wanna figure out what it means for us as lay people, we have to look very carefully at desire um, because it's something that we are able to act upon and that we, you know, we use and live by in our daily life. We don't have all these rules about not being able to do these things. And we will discover, but the, you know, the result of that is that we may not have looked at it too carefully. It's not ever questioned by having a rule that says, no, you can't do that. And then we bump up against that and we see the desire in our mind because we're not supposed to do that. So, but in our daily life, we can. And so we may not notice in our mind how much desire is there, how much of our actions flowing from hour to hour are based on desires. And we will discover when we start looking that we have lots and lots of desires, actually. We are often acting on desire, um, not necessarily just simple desires like I want a piece of chocolate, which we might do during the day. But, you know, it's like all the time. How, why do you decide to do anything? <laughs> because you want to get something and you want to get rid of something often. There are other reasons, of course, but so and that's fine. We don't need to then get all upset about it. If we have the idea that what we want to do is, is release all desire, end all desire right now, we're going to be very disappointed <laughs> and discouraged. That is not easy and it's not possible, I think, um, right away. Besides, even awakened people have desires, like the simple kind of desires. I think awakened people still have the desire to go to the bathroom, for instance. You know, you don't, as long as you've got a body. So just getting really basic, that's still there and they still get hungry. Uh, so, you know, it's not that we're gonna get rid of desire. So instead, we can start by developing discernment, wisdom around which desires are healthy and which desires are unhealthy. So the key is not, the key is really whether or not a certain desire leads to harm or suffering for ourselves or for someone else. And that can be very subtle. I mean, they're the blatant ones that lead to obvious harm. But then as we keep practicing, we see more and more layers of that. It gets more and more subtle. So I don't think we need to get too hypothetical or idealistic. We don't need to make up a sort of a um, abstract code about which desires are right or wrong. Instead, um, we can start at a very basic level if we haven't done this kind of investigation before. So one way we can start is we can, you know, we can look at the suttas. They're good guidance. On page six in your study guide, there's a nice list near the top. There's a bullet list um, of graphic images in the suttas that the Buddha used for the dangers of sense pleasure. <laughs> and, you know, again, we don't need to get too hypothetical or idealistic, but think about these images, um, like the image of the meatless bone. So the image is that there's this dog gnawing and gnawing and gnawing, and he's hungry. 
gnawing on a bone that has no meat on it. And he just, it's never satisfying and he's still hungry and he keeps gnawing on it. Does this sound like desire to you? Yeah, it does. If you've practiced with it a bit, desires are okay, but they don't last that long. And they're not really that satisfying for the most part. We just want the next thing after we get whatever it was we were looking for. I won't go through them all in such detail, but you can ponder them. A bird with a scrap of meat being attacked. So if you have something, do other people want to take it away from you? Yes, people may have had that experience sometimes. Um, a dream world. And this is not like the Tibetan practice where we're practicing emptiness and viewing life as a dream. This is a dream world like we're kind of disconnected. It's, um, you know, we're not really um, in touch with uh, something real. We're, we're wanting something so much that we're not even seeing that it isn't good. Like there are times when we're just craving that third cup of coffee. And as soon as we have it, we say, oh, that was such a bad idea. It's like it was some fantasy world about, you know, it wasn't anything based on the reality of whether we needed that or whether it would have a good result. So, you know, we can check if we're practicing now this studying of desire, which are healthy and which are unhealthy, use these images. Check if you feel like any of those things as you're pursuing desire or after you've gotten it. Because um, these point out the ways in which desires let us down. Fulfilling desire really does let us down sometimes. We've all had experiences like that. So I don't, yeah. So um, this can help us identify our unhealthy desires as if we're having some of these poor results in, in the way that we feel about them. Um, another thing that's useful to try is that practice of riding out a desire. Um, it's in the study guide. It's a very interesting practice. It's also on page six, kind of in the middle, um, where you deliberately don't fulfill a certain desire. Um, and you see that in the end, uh, what we really wanted was for the desire to go away. If a desire goes away without being fulfilled, it's actually pretty good. <laughs> um, it still feels good, even if we, even if, yeah, it feels even better actually than merely fulfilling it. So what we discover is what the little heading on that page, the end of a desire is actually what we seek. This is profound actually to start playing with this. It doesn't mean we never fulfill desires. You still have to eat. Please go to the bathroom when you have to, but we can start getting wiser about these things and notice that what we really like is that the desire ends. Um, okay. So then we get to this statement from Gil Fronstall who says, Renunciation is the capacity to let go of any desire which might cause suffering and hurt. Without being able to let go of a desire, there is no freedom. That's a pretty strong statement, and I think it's pretty good for renunciation. It doesn't mean we're letting go of every desire, but it means we would have the capacity to let go of it if we had to. If it was causing harm, if we saw it was causing harm, if we knew it would cause harm, we have to be able to let go of it. So you can check also if you're examining desire, how easily can you let go of desire? How quick can you let it go if it's not gonna work or it's causing harm? You know, it's kind of embarrassing sometimes, you know, if we were really set on the, I don't know, the leftover, the, the last bit of strawberry pie that was in the fridge 
or we could even make it something healthy. The last bit of strawberries that were in the fridge and you get home and your partner has eaten them and you were anticipating the whole way you were driving home and they're not there. You can't fulfill that desire. How quickly do you just say, okay, there's no strawberries in the fridge or do you have a moment of anger <laughs> or a moment of how come you didn't ask me beforehand? I was saving those, you know, it's like, couldn't let go. So we have to watch, be very honest about that in our mind, especially when our desires are thwarted. Can we let, just let go? So then we can also, it's not all about bad desires. There are skillful or helpful desires. So we can also make an examination of these. Uh, the wish to meditate is a good one. The wish to be free, <laughs> the wish to help someone else. These are healthy, helpful desires. The wish to learn the Dharma, study it read your study guide. That's great. Those are nice, helpful desires. Um, I also recommend the practice um, that where it says to ask, why do you practice? To be really clear, um, there isn't actually just one. So you don't have to worry about getting it right. Sometimes people, when they have a question, they worry about, oh no. It's like when the teacher asked me and I couldn't get the right answer. But there isn't just one right answer for why you practice. There's actually probably a lot of reasons um, some of them really good. And so it's nice to kind of give yourself time. No need to do it every day, but now and then reflect really carefully on why you practice. And even um, you may find in your heart, there's some little sensation about why you practice that's very hard to articulate. And you don't need to, you don't need to put words on it. Just, just feel it. So as with unskillful desire, we wanna connect in the body with skillful desire. So just like all those images about the bird getting attacked and all of that, those are pretty visceral and you realize, it's, you know, unhelpful desire does not feel good. In the same way, feel what skillful desire feels like. Learn that for yourself in your own body. It can become a guide for you as we navigate this world where, <clears throat> yes, we have to work with our desires the field of lay practice with a lot of desires. So we might be starting to get the sense then that desires are very common in the human mind, and they are. Um, but there are other things going on too that are not just desires, of course. We have things like views, intentions, stories that we have running in our minds about why this or that is true and what we need to do and so forth. Um, so we can start to see that we have uh, mental patterns, let's just call them that in general, mental patterns. Um, and these are maybe um, habitual channels down which the mind will flow. Have you ever noticed that if you're not really paying that much attention, your mind will just leap into one of these tracks and just start going and you know you start you get a half a thought about something and your mind is gone down the habitual track and you realize that you're thinking yet again about that same thing that you've thought about 15 times in the last two days. Um, it's just because it's there's a channel there. It's like water. When the mind isn't watched, it just runs down the channels. It's actually, the mind is incredibly repetitive. Once you start meditating and watching this, you realize this. It's very boring. It's so boring, all the thoughts that we have that are always the same all the time. So um, at some point in observing the mind, we start to get the suspicion that these patterns kind of run on their own momentum. Like as long as I'm not noticing or doing anything to stop them, 
they'll just run. <laughs> it's like, oh, wow, we just keep. Um, so even if a pattern is not particularly harmful, you know, it's just that thought trail that you often have. It's not very free if the mind just does that, if it just does its same old habitual reactive thing every time, how much freedom is there there? So renunciation somehow has to also to do with not being compelled to follow all of our mental patterns all the time. That has something to do with renunciation also. So I'm gonna suggest that we basically do these patterns out of momentum. And if we like those patterns, we might be addicted to them. So then we get to the Joseph Goldstein quote that says, renunciation is non-addiction. Non-addiction, it's kind of powerful. So we feel, we do these patterns partly because they feel safe and comfortable. They feel like me. If I'm telling my story, if I'm running through my opinion about this or that for the 117th time, um, that's comfortable. I'm good with that. I, I can go over that again. I will feel justified, valid, validated, safe. That's me. We're gonna to get to this next week, those patterns called me. Um, so, you know, this is okay. Again, not every mental pattern is harmful and some things are even useful, but if we don't see them and they're just habitual, then they were not free. You know, it's not freedom exactly. So um, fortunately, the mind can be changed. Um, it's malleable, can be changed. It can be changed in a number of ways. It can be changed through deliberate practice. So mindfully doing something different than your habits. Um, that's one way to practice. Um, it can also be changed by allowing ourselves to feel the impact of something that's unskillful. So um, some of you are, I see a couple of nods there. This happens on retreat a lot, is that we're, you know, we're not doing our usual thing. We get to retreat, things are slowed down. We don't have much else to do but meditate. And so we can't do as many of our usual patterns. We don't have the people around that, that we get to relate to in our habitual ways. And we suddenly, um, we can feel suddenly the impact, like people will say on retreat, I had no idea that I spend so much of my time being angry. You know, it's like, or complaining or being afraid, whatever. It's just like, that's just the go-to pattern all the time. And you see it finally. And you and it, it's powerful in retreat. Sometimes people cry a lot on retreat because they feel the impact of what their mind has been doing. And they haven't been feeling it because it's just been sort of running and habitual and not mindful of it. And as soon as you feel it, it's like, oh, and it's not that that instantly changes it. Um, there were several passages in this week's reading about how it takes some time, even after we've seen things, to be able to undo them. But there's something about feeling that in the body of how hard it is to be, say, self-critical all the time, that it starts to shift the mind. It starts to find other channels to go down. So that's another way we can mindfully change things deliberately. We can feel their impact. Um, in the body. Either of these, I think, is related to the Four Noble Truths. We see that the suffering, when we really see the suffering and what's causing it, our habits are clinging, are wanting it to be this way, something in the mind looks for the path to let go of that and be free. I just named the Four Noble Truths, right? So that's how they work. 
in our everyday mundane lay life here in the modern West. Um, so there's even a time um, when we realize that it's not totally intentional. You know, we can't change some things intentionally, but a lot of this is not so intentional. There are ways in which it's operating below a level where we could have willed it. And that starts to really bring in the power of the practice. We'll talk about this some more next week as we get into some of the deeper layers, like letting go of our addiction with ourself. That's not something you can will because <laughs> the will comes from the self. So um, there's a role for trust and faith and don't worry, it'll come up in the, we just work at the top level and it starts working into the heart. So um, working with our patterns and having the idea of becoming free of them is an example of renunciation as right thought, which was a lot of what the sutta readings were about this week. So the way that this quality, um, nikama, that's the Pali word for renunciation, the way that it comes into the teachings explicitly, like where I'm talking about a lot of different teachings, but where does the word nikama actually appear? It appears in the Eightfold Path as one of the three wise intentions in the second step of the path intention of renunciation, the intention of non-cruelty, and the intention of non-harming. It's often framed as generosity, love, and compassion, but I kind of like renunciation as the first one. And so that's where it comes in. It's also one of the paramis, although that's not a, a classical sutta teaching that came later, one of the perfections of mind that the bodhisattva practices. Um, so this is good. So you notice that renunciation is placed right there alongside non-harming as you know, the same level of, of importance. Um, so this is good. You can read the, the great suttas in the study guide on right thought. And it, ha it has a lot to do with conditioning our mind, right? And most of those suttas are about if you spend a lot of time thinking about sense, sense desires and cruelty and ill will, that's where your mind will go like listening to somebody complain for an hour every day. Um, or if you put your mind toward renunciation, love, and compassion, that's the way your mind will go. You'll have more of that, more thoughts that run along those habitual channels, different channels. So this, this is a lot about conditioning our minds in various ways. So as we start to get freer, and this is the last point I'll make to summarize the end of our um, uh, section two about relational harmony. As we start to get freer of our own mental patterns, we will find that our relationships improve, even if the other person doesn't change at all, because our own mind is freer. Um, we, a lot of our conflicts that we have with other people, or even our sort of internal tensions, where we're not necessarily in conflict, but we're just, you know, bumping up against them, have to do with our habitual patterns that are bumping up against their behavior or something. And, you know, an inability to respond in a different way. You know, somebody does something and we get angry. Somebody says this and we get irritated, you know, some, et cetera. It's like, but those, we need to take responsibility for our end of that, for getting irritated, for getting angry, for wanting them to be different. Those are all um, unskillful thought patterns in our mind. And if we can respond differently with compassion or with patience or with generosity, something else, 
something more on the skillful lines, we will miraculously discover that those relationships get better, even if the other person isn't doing anything to practice. So it's very good. Um, our relationships will improve at least. I'm not saying all of our problems get solved, they don't, but our relationships will improve just by working on our own minds and our own habitual repetitive patterns. So this is a huge area of practice that I'm compressing into small space, but I hope it gives you a flavor of um, what renunciation can mean in our world, our lay world of many desires and doing things, having to accomplish things and create things and be in relationships and so forth. So it's very rich, very interesting work. So with that, um, I would like for us to meditate a bit and then we'll have a chance after that for um, some questions or comments, but let's, let's let the words settle. You can let, stop thinking about my words. You can just let them settle and we'll take some in some practice. So now um, finding a posture that is upright and relaxed. Maybe taking a couple of long, slow, deep breaths. Softening the shoulders, the belly. Feeling the head and the eyes soften and relax. You've been listening, maybe thinking. So just letting that release, trusting that what you needed to hear is, has been heard. It entered through some channel. Allowing the shoulder blades to slide down the back. Perhaps imagining a little space between the very top vertebra and the base of the skull, letting the neck naturally straighten upward without any strain. Having a sense that we're sitting in a dignified, even noble posture. And softening down into the belly area, releasing any muscles that are tight there, finding a balanced posture so we don't need to use our belly and our back to hold us up. Softening the legs, the arms, all the way into the hands and feet.
And just intending to be simple in the body and the mind. Perhaps using the simple basic sensations of the breath as an anchor for the mind, an easeful flowing kind of object where we can rest. And if the mind gets lost briefly in a trail of thought, it's no problem. It's just a habit. You might note briefly what the mind was thinking about. And then gently and kindly just returning to the breath and body, something simpler.
as you gently continue to stay simple, do you notice that there are themes or maybe common patterns that the mind is getting caught up in? If it's not, that's great. But there may have been some common themes. That's good information, just to know what habitual trails are popular for the mind right now. And in the last couple of minutes of our meditation, perhaps consciously bringing in a sense of kindness to the body, to the mind. This poor mind, so busy, so habitual. This is what we live with, and it's fine, it's okay. We have mindfulness, we have the teachings. Be kind to this being, this body and mind.
Okay, so we have a few minutes. Um, if anyone has uh, questions or comments about teachings this evening. Yeah. Anything that came up from the meditation? Yeah, Preeti. Yeah, um, just something about the meditation where, you know, again, I think just to watch the, you know, the pattern of, you know, what things are, are, are happening, happening in the mind and, you know, um, I think the last bit that you had about kindness, I thought was really helpful and beneficial because that just kind of like just automatically just um, gave rise to a lot of ease and just kind of like, yeah, it's okay. You know, this is what the mind does. And just, you know, you kind of put some space and, and distance. And you just kind of see it for what it is. So I really appreciated that last part and, you know, as a way to just reframe versus, you know, you shouldn't be thinking these things or what, you know, why would the mind stop? And like, it's a really good way to shift out of it. So thank you. Yeah. Okay, good. Yeah. And that's one way that we can start to disidentify a little bit with our thoughts. Um, so thank you. Um, Randy. I have a question uh, that I have a little struggle with. And okay. The, what strikes me personally as a kind of, this uh, self-indulgent practice of watching our mind and giving up our thinking, paying attention to our thinking. And I'm wondering about some other principles, like if you imagine or actually have um, very little, imagine having very little and living in very um, minimal circumstances, then um, the principle of gratitude comes in um, to my mind that that can be an antidote to some of this um, um, attention to how we're actually thinking and it's uh, in, a, in our kind of Western uh, practice. And um, that, and that um, in, Asian practices in other forms of Buddhism, for example, there is a lot of prayer for blessings and blessings are not material objects and uh, possessions. They're very um, ethereal, spiritual. And once Gil kind of pulled the rug out from under me when I was talking about renunciation and he said, well, eventually we have to renounce renunciation. That's true. Kind of that. I'm sorry, I missed the last question. You cut out for a moment. He kind of left it at that. And, oh, he left it uh, at that. That's what I didn't hear. Yes, well, this is something we'll get into next week a little bit in that if you read in the study guide section three, which I'll just say now, that's part of your homework. Um, is uh, we have to let go of the wholesome eventually. And it's, uh, you know, this pulling out the rug will happen from any direction you come at it. You do have to renounce renunciation because we can't reify it and make that into the thing. Um, I once asked um, a teacher, 
uh, I have the desire for awakening, you know, but how, how am I going to, um, you know, let go of everything, you know, is, is that okay to have that desire? Is that, that was when I wasn't sure about skillful and unskillful desire. And the teacher said, well, yes, you can have that desire until it's the last one. <laughs> so it's the same thing. That's wanting to awaken is just fine up until the very last moment when we have to let go of everything. Um, but I'm, I'm wanting to connect with your uh, earlier point about um, simplicity and gratitude and blessings and so forth. I think we find our way through that. Um, I think that anyone who's interested in renunciation, such as the folks in this class, we will see that having a simpler lifestyle, maybe being grateful for, the, for a few, just a few things is enormously supportive of practice actually. Um, and yeah, and that we, fewer things, less mental clutter, an opportunity for gratitude for the things that we do have. It's all part of a skillful system of creating it, you know, creating what works for our practice. That said, there are people who have a lot of stuff in the world and some of them are quite advanced practitioners. So I don't want to make it into one thing or the other, but it's all in the mental, you know, the mental realm. And maybe the last point I'll say is, um, because uh, you used the word self-indulgent, <laughs> watching of our minds. This exercise that we did where we noticed in this meditation, noticing where the mind was going and if there was a sort of a tally mark of common things, that is not a typical kind of vipassana meditation, of course. That was something special I was offering uh, to go with the teaching tonight. Normally, of course, the instruction is, you know, drop it and come back to the breath or, or some such and it's true that, you know, a psychologizing what we're thinking about and all of that is not really um, important for Buddhist practice uh, overall, but it can be important if we're studying this renunciation and we need to know what's going on in our mind. So um, I hope that mitigates concerns about self-indulgence um, and so forth. If I place it in a little bit of context, does that help? Yeah. Thank you. Okay. And then we have Sandy, and that'll be the last one because I have to say a couple things at the end. Um, I had a question on the Suda readings. Uh, the very last two selections uh, for this time, um, say in 6.11, talking about the three things, sensual, malicious, and cruel thoughts, and then sensual, malicious, and cruel perceptions. And I'm a little confused if we're talking about something like malicious or cruel what the difference between thoughts and perceptions is i mean what's a malicious perception oh okay so that um yeah perception and thought are highly related um perception just comes a little bit earlier than thought you know perception is a simpler cognizance if you will so we can perceive, for example, if you walk into a room and somebody has their back turned away from the door, uh, you could perceive that as threatening. You know, I came in and they weren't even, you know, they had their back turned to me. So you know, that's a mind that has put a view on, put a perception on, or you might not have that perception. You know, you might think nothing of that or um, yeah. Maybe that wasn't the best example, but 
or seeing somebody in a certain, say, say a certain thing, if they say a certain thing, for some people, a particular word will have a perceptual impact that is, we think is harmful. And so we immediately have a bad thought about them saying that somebody else, that word's not charged at all. They see it as friendly. They're interested. Oh, what an interesting word choice. So I'm trying to give examples of how our initial perception can be shaded positive or negative. And from there, we will take off on thought trails. Does that make sense? Yeah, that clarifies it. So it's just the same as the usual thought versus perception. I hear the bell, I perceive the bell before I have the thought bell. And looking at that in this kind of malicious context for, for in this case. Yeah, in the case of a bell, the perception is actually knowing that it's a bell. That's in Buddhist understanding, the, the labeling or the naming of something is the perception. And then the thought would be, that's a nice bell, or I hate that bell, something like that, going on with conceptual ideas about it. Yeah, sometimes these terms are used a little differently in Buddhism. I know we're right at time, so I just say I'll send you an, an email also um, with the information, this information, but um, uh, please read section three and the associated suttas in the study guide. And I know one person here doesn't have the study guide, so I will send that to you. And um, let's see, and maybe try out as, again, any of the suggested practices about letting go of mental patterns like we talked about for during today, please try them this week and we'll have a time next week to talk about how that went. Um, and then I guess the very last thing I will share just, and I'll put this in the email too, but some of you prefer it clickable. I'm gonna put in the chat a, um, Donna Link or Teacher Donna and for Sangha Donna. This class is given through Insight Santa Cruz for those of you not in this area. Um, so those are there if you prefer to click or I'll put them in the email. All right, any last thoughts before we sign off for the week? All right. Have a great week. Have a fun week of practice. This is so delightful to share this with you. So take care and I'll see you next week. Feel free to unmute and say goodbye. Bye-bye. Thank you, Kim. Thanks, Kim. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.